Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, part of the Pitcher List Podcast Network and a remedial course in baseball stats. I'm your host and expert layman, Matt Goodwin, and I'm joined by my co-host, fake baseball economist, Alexander Chase. How you doing, Alex? You know, can't complain too, too much. Uh, at least not today. Um, I'm really happy that uh, I'm not in Texas right now, where all my family is. And, uh, it's a somewhat serious place to start, but uh, we talked about snow previously, and uh, they're getting that and a whole lot more there. Yeah, I, uh, I've like I've only been to Texas one time in my life, uh, and it wasn't for very long. But I have to imagine Texas is ill prepared for the ice and snow that uh, that is coming through. Oh boy, you do pretty exactly correct. <laughs> um, if you don't ever have to deal with it, you just don't buy the stuff to get ready for it, you know. Yeah, definitely, and infrastructure and all that. So, yeah, uh, actually... Coats, uh, too, even. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I was going to say, sometimes people around here, I, I live in, in New England, and, and, you know, we get a lot of weather, and, and uh, sometimes around here we're ill-prepared for it. It's just uh, Mother Nature can be can be pretty difficult sometimes. So definitely uh, thoughts to people in Texas dealing with uh, some circumstances that they don't normally have to deal with. Absolutely. Um, for those of you guys listening uh, today, um, we're probably right in the middle of PitchCon, which uh, supports Feeding America. And there are definitely a lot of people out there in Texas who definitely are really benefiting from food banks and generally food assistance in general. So an institution like Feeding America is definitely an important thing to support. You'll hear us shilling for them quite a bit and for a good reason. Uh, But I'm really happy to know that a lot of my friends back home have been doing everything they can to try to help out those they can help out. And uh, I mean, you want to point to moments like this where you can know that the money you give goes somewhere good um even if it's not a great thing to think about otherwise yeah i mean it's it's hard to think about people uh suffering like like that but it's uh so fantastic that there's people supporting the cause and, and being out there and doing good you know one of the coolest things i think about this baseball fantasy baseball and baseball in general community um, is is just how supportive everybody is of each other, but also how much good it does. Uh, and so, um, you know, kudos to Nick, Nick Pollock uh, of, of PitcherList, putting together PitchCon year after year, and all the people who contribute and come and guest and, and make that happen. Uh, really great cause. Uh, get involved if you can. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Alex Chase, for being part of that. Um, uh, why don't you talk yeah. a little bit about the panel you're going to do? Maybe we'll, we'll plug that a little bit. Yeah, well... Uh- I'm going to be on my own. Uh, I don't get any support there. I have to stand up and, uh, you know, just chat about stuff for a while. Um, We will have a future episode that's going to be pretty similar to a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about, though not like one to one. Uh, But I wrote a piece back in November about contact suppression for pitchers and Mm -hmm. how we can improve it. Focused a lot on hard hit per nine and hard hit per uh, batter faced as stats um i'm gonna be talking about that but i'm also just gonna be more talking to- uh, more broadly talking about how to compare people well using stat casts and other things so it's kind of like a um, grab bag of all the stuff that i love to chat about um we're gonna see how it goes i uh <laughs> i got some more slides that i'm still in the process of making as we're recording here uh uh couple days out. So. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's going to come together uh, just right, all the, at the right moment. And uh, again, thanks for being a part of that. And uh, thank you at home, uh, those of you who are supporting and participating and contributing. It's uh, really for a great cause. I bring this stuff up. It's like a little bit on the heavier note because it is definitely important. But the nice thing about all of this is like we get to enjoy a pretty light note sort of stuff. And we're going to talk about like stats and stuff today, but you know, most of us are here because we enjoy it. Um, and 
I like that we can leverage wanting to be somewhere as like a tool for fundraising. That's a smart thing to do. I'm glad that people are willing to give up their time to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, I think it's time to now talk about our number of the week. Um, and this number is is a big number. Alex, are you ready for this number? Uh, am I ever? <laughs> I think always. I think you're always ready for the number, uh, which is just amazing. Um, I'm never ready for the numbers. You're always ready for the numbers. <laughs> so I'm going to hit you with it here. It's a, it's a 201 WRC+. Plus. Oh, that's a number I like. <laughs> well, that's a number you <laughs> well, should like. Now, the, the thing that I want to say is that there may be people at home who have no idea what WRC+, plus means. And so the first thing I want to do is ask you to maybe kind of talk to, to us about you know, what does that mean? What does a 201 WRC plus mean? Okay, so I think there are a lot of people who have heard of it and maybe even loosely use it, but don't know what it means on a technical level. And um, that's kind of okay in this case more than others because uh, weighted runs created plus is one of the best uh, more is good numbers out there um, that even if you don't know the mechanics of it at all, you can still quote it and feel good. Um, it takes into account a couple different factors park factors, uh, defense, et cetera, et cetera. It allows you to compare across eras, which is really mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. And basically it's on like the 100 is average scale. Mm -hmm. um, so that if you're a hitter, um, 100 WRC plus is bang average. Like 110 is like maybe average uh, more power. 150 is really, really super good. Mike Trout for his career is like a 180 WRC mm -hmm. plus guy. So 201 tells me that someone did some uh, really mean things to a baseball. <laughs> um, and that, as long as I'm not the pitcher responsible, makes me pretty excited. So what what do I need to do with this number? Do I need to guess who it is? Well, so that's what we're going to move into uh, now that now that we've <laughs> kind of explained the value of it. And I, I, just again, before we move on quickly, uh, if you're not super familiar with it or you've seen it, you're tangentially familiar with it, it really is maybe one of the best single stats that you can look at if you're really trying to do a player-to-player -player comparison. Uh, no mm. single stat is ideal for that, uh, but this is probably the one that gets closest. I would, uh, do you agree? Yeah, yeah. For the who's better um, in general, for like a baseball reason, right? Who's contributing more to their baseball team, creating more runs as a hitter? Um, so I'm trying to guess. Uh, well, before you, you actually see. start guessing this, this is what I want to do. Uh, I set this up for you. If you're game, if you're game, we're going to uh, open oh, this up a little bit. So I'm going to see if you, I'm going to give you eight guesses. Eight. You get eight okay. tries to try and get the top five 2020 WRC plus performers as hitters. Okay. So I know where I'm going to start. I'm going to see what I can do. Um, Fernando Tatis, Corey Seager, um, Jose Ramirez, uh, Jose Abreu, Mike Trout. And this is like the last three. I had to try to figure out who I'm going to spend these guesses is on. Is it going to affect um, you if I told you? Uh, you only had one up to that point. You now have two of five. Ooh, okay. So, <laughs> and I think okay. you've already used up your eight um, guesses, but I'm going to let that go. No, I, I have two more, I swear. <laughs> I swear I have two more. Um, let's see. Um, You're also missing number one at 201. Okay. Um, what was your minimum? How many played uh, It's With qualifiers. Okay, so that sounds like a, at least at least half a season. Oh, goodness. I'm missing a lot of people. Juan Soto. There he is. That's um, number one. Of course it is. Of course Juan Soto is the top of the list. And let's see if I can get the last guy. Um, you're missing two, so you're 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 probably not going to make it inside the eight. But that's okay. It's all right. It's, it was a tough, um, a tough uh, Let's question. see if I can. I'm going to grab I got one more, and I'm going to try to spend it well. Um, Mookie Betts. 
No, no. I'm going to read them to you one through five. And, and okay. what I want what I want to focus on here is, is what makes the number that we started with, that 201, uh, which belongs to Juan Soto, even that much more remarkable as I read these off. Listen to where we land just going from number one to number five in terms of the actual number. So we have Juan Soto at number one with a WRC plus of 201. Number two, Freddie Freeman. His WRC plus is 187. A fantastic number, but a pretty decent drop off. Oh, yeah. uh, number three, Marcel Ozuna oh, yeah. at 179. Number four, DJ LeMayhew at 176. And number five. I always underrate him. Yeah, yeah. And number five, uh, Jose Abreu at 166. So. The, just to put in context, the number five was 166 and Juan Soto was at 201, which isn't to say 166 is bad. It's to just point out yeah. how otherworldly 201 was in 2020 for yeah, Juan Soto. It's it's insane. It's insane. Um, and as I understand it, WRC Plus is linear, but really difficult to climb in. So that's to say, like, um, it's not like you need to do just one question better like you're on the sat to jump from like a 175 to a 176 whereas like like it's not like it gets easier to move up as you get into the higher scores Mm -hmm. um it is a huge jump and there is a reason why there are so few people who get to the 200s um as we said mike trout in full seasons is going to be about 180 Mm -hmm. um if you're a washington nationals fan um just be happy yeah right (laughs) soto is just (laughs) stupid good I'm so happy to live somewhere where I can watch him. It's it, just un, unreal. Just a total, totally unreal number. Um, so again, that WRC plus is a nice stat and it's a good place for us to start. Um, and one of the elements of it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that it does include correction for park. Is that is that correct? Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. So this kind of brings us to our central question of the week, uh, which is about park factors and and why why do we care? What do they mean? How do they help us? understand what it is we're trying to do as baseball fans and fantasy baseball players. Well, um, I'm going to start with you, uh, Mr. Red Sox fan. Um, That's me. Why is it that you like Fenway? I assume you like Fenway, right? Um, I love Fenway Park. Um, all right. How much time do we have for me to wax poetic about Fenway Park? Can, can, can I give you like 25 seconds? 25. I don't know. That's tough. Okay. I love Fenway Park <laughs> because of the atmosphere. I love Fenway Park because of the history uh, you know, I'm, I'm a history person. Um, I love Fenway Park because it's so quirky and unique and interesting. Uh, one of the things I love about baseball overall is that each stadium is its own its own creation. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a distance between bases that's consistent in the mound and, and all of that. But, um, you know, you watch a hockey game and a rink is a rink. You watch a basketball game and the court is the court. Uh, you watch a baseball game and the stadium is not necessarily the stadium. And so uh, one of the things that I like so much about Fenway is just how much character it has. Yeah. I remember as a kid watching uh, balls ricochet off the green monster over Manny Ramirez and uh, um, whoever the Red Sox happened to be playing. And, you know, it didn't seem like Manny had gotten any better at playing balls off the wall just because of like familiarity. But uh, no, not um, really. It definitely really made it fun to watch games that happened there. <laughs> and I think that's a thing that I love is you want to find some new and interesting thing, whether that's like a dude who has a weird pitch or a dude with who has a weird batting stance, mm-hmm. or, I mean, I really like that we can talk about Fenway. Um, the thing is, if we're playing fantasy, 
or if we're evaluating players, just mm-hmm. like in general, which right. is a thing that people who don't play fantasy also do, right. I'm told, um, <laughs> is that non-even playing fields, you know, <laughs> that's that's an important thing that you need to be able to account for. Mm-hmm. If you ignore something, it's still happening and it's going to bias and affect your data. So you've got to be able to adjust for it. And that's like the idea behind WRC+. But it's also something we need to care about when a guy moves parks or you know, maybe a park itself changes in some meaningful and significant way. Right. Those are all reasons why we need to get why things work so that whenever we're confronted with change, we can have good expectations. Well, and I mean, that's ostensibly the reason that ballparks change, right, is because that change impacts the the way that things uh, happen, the way that the outcomes on the field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when they rebuilt the Walmart in Arlington um, that the Rangers play at. um, And yes, I did call it the Walmart. It is a horrendous building. Um, A lot of that was built with fans in mind, but it was also at least a little bit with outcomes in mind. Mm -hmm. Texas had been for so long, just a nuclear hitters park, Mm -hmm. uh, especially when it was nuclear hot outside. Um, (laughs) And and that actually had some competitive drawbacks. If you're a pitcher, you're not going to want to sign somewhere that's going to wreck your stats in the future. That's going to demoralize. Right. Right. See Colorado. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, they got so many problems there, but even <laughs> a good front office would have a hard time recruiting pitching free agents. Sure. Um, so they're putting the roof on that same park. It, it's the same dimensions, almost exactly. Like, pretty close. Um, it does change things because suddenly it goes from really hot and it plays differently. Right. And we'll talk about all the different ways in which parks can be weird and funky, but it's really important to understand why it is that someone would make a change or build a park in a certain way. If you're a team, you want to make sure you can attract free agents. Um, I should also just say that if I were a pitcher, um, and I, the guy I went to high school with, uh, Taylor Hearn, actually, uh, we both grew up in the Dallas area. He's a pitcher for the Texas Rangers. I am sure that he's very excited to be able to play um, some indoor games in Texas next year, <laughs> not just because the ball, the ball will probably fly a little bit less far, but also because he won't die. Um, sitting in the heat. <laughs> so best of luck to Taylor Hearn. I love his stuff. Also, he uh, throws super, super duper hard and has got some great, great fun stuff to watch. And you want that in any sort of borderline reliever starter type. We don't know exactly where he's going to land, but I'm cheering for him either way. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about this this park factor element then and, and all of the things that go into it and um, how I as maybe somebody who's not as well-versed in these things, can use this information to my advantage. So um, when you typically have heard this, and I'm sure you've heard this many times before, like what association do you have with the word? Like what do you think we're trying to factor in exactly? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, I, I guess what I'm assuming is being factored in is that there's different distances, uh, different maybe air densities. Yeah, uh, yeah, but like if I'm trying to rate the parks, what am I... Am I just going to rate them on difference? Am I going to rate them on air density? And I think that's the question everyone should ask themselves. It's like, what actually does a park factor rating come into play? Um, what does Colorado do compared to elsewhere? I mean, are you talking about like the the end result of whatever it yeah, is that's yeah, going that's what, on? Yeah. So the end result would be, uh, does it deaden offense? Does it increase offense? Does it uh, yeah, lead yeah, to exactly. more home runs? Does it lead to more base hits? Does it suppress contact? Uh, t- not not contact itself, but the results of contact. Um, that's ultimately, I would think, why we care. Um, it's mm-hmm. and then those are there's the, the factors that go into why that happens and why it doesn't happen. Yeah. Thing is, you just brought up like three or four different scales we could rate someone on. Like, 
the parks are not going to do all of those same things at once. So traditional park factors, capital P, capital F park factors, are typically going to be talking about just like offensive environment. How mm -hmm. many runs are we going to allow? Uh, when you move a pitcher from one place to another, how is that going to affect his ERA? And then maybe wait by guess. But like mm -hmm. the point is more runs. That's not a perfect way to compare parks if you want to like make predictions for different players, though. Like, let's say that I'm transporting. I always talk about Tyler Glasnow and uh, Dallas Keuchel between one park and another. They're not going to be affected in the same way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I'm if I'm dropping them into uh, somewhere where the fences are pretty in, relatively speaking, like you can expect the guy who gives up more home runs and fly balls in general, it's going to be affected more. Yeah. But, like the guy who gives up a lot of fly balls, maybe you won't. So that's like an important sort of thing to take in it. Whereas like if you're somewhere that has really, really deep fences, um, Detroit, for example, actually, if you're a ground baller in Detroit, um, that ground ball gets at all past the infield. The outfield has a lot of room to cover mm -hmm. and uh, you're going to give up some deep stuff. Um, so that's like the general problem with old style part factors. So what we're going to talk about today, uh, there's a trio of excellent pieces that are underlying all of this. They were published on Pitcher List. Two of them uh, come from my good friend Dan Richards, um, mm -hmm. who basically had this fundamental and awesome idea that we should use barrels. We talked <laughs> about barrels in a previous episode. Yes. And then Alex Fast basically ran with that and went in a whole other direction that's equally cool. Um, if you guys are curious, we'll have links to those in the show notes. I, I mean, I link them in a tweet like every four days, I swear. <laughs> They're such good pieces. Um, so definitely go give those a read. We'll recap some of the ideas and like how you can kind of recreate and rethink about stuff in similar ways as we're talking today. But really just got to make sure I'm giving credit where credit is absolutely mm -hmm. due. And that's to Dan Richards uh, and Alex Fast as like the foundational people that I'm looking to to influence how I'm thinking here. So um, let's start with just like some playing around expectations. You're moving a pitcher around and we're going to make him like an extreme fly ball guy because okay. Yeah, we're going to move around uh, <laughs> Matthew Boyd. <laughs> well, he might benefit from being moved around a little bit. Uh, yeah, do you, do you want Matthew Boyd pitching um, in uh, uh, Fenway next year? No, although, I mean, at this point, maybe, if you look at their rotation. <laughs> I do not begrudge you for that. So we're going to move Matthew Boyd around. Um, what sort of things do you expect would be, like, a common thing about ballparks that are going to be really bad for Matthew Boyd? Um, I would think shorter fences, um, uh, places yeah. where the ball is going to travel further in the air, maybe places where he gets less rotation. So let's talk about that. We've got like three different things you're bringing up right there. So the first one's fences in. I think this is the easiest and most obvious like park factor thing out there, right? Um, the classic example, I think of like the short fence place is uh, the Great American Launchpad in Cincinnati. <laughs> the fences are pretty short there in mm -hmm. every direction. They're pretty even in every direction also. Uh, they are a park factor crazy place. Uh, offense is really high in Cincinnati, period. Um, because the reality of our current game is that, well, if the ball's going out, um, that's what everyone's trying to do. Yeah. We're not exactly small balling it like we used to. Right. So, like, as maybe park factors have changed over time, you're probably... Like, I haven't even looked this up, and I can just make this guess because I know how the league has changed. Because home runs are up places that give up more home runs are going to be the places that are more likely to become more hitter friendly over time just because the league has changed and since he's definitely a good example of that um you brought some other things uh you brought up um air resistance uh what do you mean by that 
Uh, well, I I think that if you're in a place like Colorado, the air's a little thinner. There's there's less friction if the if the air isn't quite as uh, dense if it's thinner, which happens at higher elevations, for example, uh, as well as other <laughs> circumstances. But uh, if it's thinner, the ball is traveling through it at a certain speed. Uh, there's less friction that's slowing it down, and therefore, I would think, as a non-physics, non-math person, that it would travel farther. Yeah, yeah, totally right. Um, we don't play a whole lot of uh, baseball in New Mexico City. Uh, we don't right. play MLB baseball, at least. There's definitely a lot of baseball being played in Mexico City. Um, but you can guarantee that um, if you parked um, Mike Trout in uh, Mexico City, mm-hmm. um, some magical things would happen, <laughs> but not for the pitchers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you also talked about um, how that actually affects the pitchers themselves. And this is a really interesting thing as well. Um, the same thing is happening air resistance wise to the ball as you throw it as well though right um, and people don't think about this for colorado it is really hard to get your pitches to break properly there uh, mm-hmm. so if you're a cutter thrower your ball's not gonna cut as much <laughs> and that's bad for a lot of reasons um colorado's got some really deep fences and you know about that too um so you brought up some stuff like there's a reason that colorado has those deep fences um they've got to have them a little bit deeper back than elsewhere now these park factor um, pieces that have been written basically take this here's my expectation how can we test it um sort of thing and their big thing is using barrels we've talked about barrels they're really predictive of home runs they're really fair playing field and they basically just test how many barrels in each direction for each park get over the fence okay so um let's think about fenway um we're gonna throw a lefty into fenway um, so he's not hitting over the monster. He's heading towards the pesky porch. Pole. Is that what it's called? Pesky pole. Yeah. Pesky, pesky pole. pole. It's okay. I forgive you. Orioles fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, you've got someone, uh, you got Raphael Devers uh, heading towards the pesky pole. Um, and you can actually go and basically you take all of the um, barrels that have been hit and you figure out out of all of those barrels, how many of them became home runs. And that is a way to establish a new home run specific park factor sort of calculation okay. so if we we're trying to figure out where someone would move around we can figure out how that would affect things and that's one of the things that dan richards did i think this is part two piece so as i'm kind of like going through and opening up some stuff on the fly we actually just go check out how that works in boston um i would be very interested because uh again fenway is a very quirky stadium so this doesn't apply yeah. league wide but you know pesky's pole is super short but it goes almost straight back from there so mm-hmm. left-handed hitters uh people kind of think oh it must be super easy to just wrap it around the pole over there but it's it's not that easy for lefties to hit home runs because it goes straight back and and uh it's it's much tougher than than it might seem that it would be and i I guess this kind of gets to a question i have overall about park factor maybe we can wrap this in as we're kind of bringing this to fenway uh and that is how useful is it in terms of the aggregate on the macro level when we're trying Mm -hmm. to say like this stadium is this thing right and we're labeling this stadium as hitter friendly or pitcher friendly and how do we make it meaningful in the micro where we're talking about this guy who is a right-handed power hitter who pulls the ball 49% of the time? Um, can that affect? Can, can we take somebody who is in a, a quote-unquote hitter-friendly park, um, but it's mostly hitter-friendly to center and right, and, and, and take a batter who hits it to left field all the time and say it might be hitter-friendly, but not for that guy? Yeah, we absolutely can. 
that's what Dan's piece here is. So here he has his like home run park factors. And he basically he talks about how many home runs you get out of a set of barrels. So left-handed hitters who are pulling the ball um, in Fenway Park, when they barreled it to right field, pulled the ball, it's a home run 59.5% of the time. That is significantly lower than across like the rest of the league. Um, it is mm-hmm. actually, let me make sure I get this, second to last to Oracle yeah. Park. Yeah. Um, so like those dimensions are actually very friendly to fly ball pitchers. Um, who would have to thought? lefties. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you may think who is going to be generating fly balls to ref- lefties? Right-handed pitchers mostly because they're disproportionately right. a going to be giving up loud contact to lefties, and they're also disproportionately going to be facing them. So if you're a righty pitcher who, you know, is generating fly balls, it's a really good place to be, relatively speaking. Now Oracle in general, um, out in Oakland, you want to be there. Um, <laughs> less than fifty percent of the lefty barrels, uh, pulled barrels, are home runs there. Uh, league-wide in general, center field is just not a great place to barrel the ball to. Um, Comerica Park, 12% mm-hmm. is the lowest. The highest? Do you want to give it a guess there? Uh, center field is the deepest part of most stadiums. So but, I would yeah. guess 35 to 40. Uh, for the for the high end, you're not too far off. Um, like Petco Park is at 48 and it's like eighth on the list. First is actually Dodger Stadium. It's pretty even. Okay. Uh, Great American Bar- Ballpark, pretty even all the way across. Coors Field, pretty even all the way across, relatively speaking. Um, so you're going to see more consistent numbers in places where the dimensions are fairly consistent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Angel Stadium and Dodger Stadium in, in uh, LA are the two friendliest to center. But like if you're barreling it to center, you're hoping it's a double or a triple. That's not a home mm-hmm. run pretty much anywhere for the most right. part. Um, an interesting example of that. Let's put that into action. You're Nick Castellanos. You're leaving Detroit. You're going to, we'll forget that little trip to regularly he did. You're going to Great American Ballpark. So, a ton of his barrels are going to center. Twelve percent of those barrels are going are going out previously. Mm-hmm. Now at Great American Launchpad, fifty five percent of them are suddenly home runs. Yeah, what a significant difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like that's basically the crux of why these are so easy to use. Like not all barrels are created equal. Like some shots are gonna be out no matter where they're at. Uh, Statcast has released some really cool stuff about doubters versus like. Um, no doubters <laughs> is their parlance and I, I love that actually it's really intuitive. yeah it's really really um, kind of catchy um and those don't like they take into account park dimensions so they like it's like all right this ball dropped here at this distance they don't actually take into heart weather effects which is something we hadn't talked about when you previously brought that up basically hot makes ball go far um yeah. pretty simple yeah <laughs> i don't really think i need to explain that but like we can take these sorts of directional park factors and make really simple and easy to use this place is going to be better for this dude sort of prediction so that's what's so cool about them so yeah yeah that's really the, the big deal is like we have this cool data we just go do some cool stuff any other like parks being weird that you you want to take some guesses at well i have it up in front of me well i was actually thinking maybe what we could do is take a look at instead of the starting from the ballparks is start looking at maybe some players um especially maybe a couple of players who are making moves where we could kind of look at this in action. So, um, you know, do you want to start with a pitcher or do you want to start with a hitter? Let's start with a hitter. Let's start with the most obvious and fun hitter. Let's start with Nolan Arenado. Um, So Nolan Arenado uh, makes a ton of contact, which actually makes his barrel rate look less impressive than it is. Mm -hmm. The dude hits the ball hard and he hits it often. A great combination. 
Um, he's also, um, well, gone from like one of the most extreme and weird places in terms of baseball, Coors Field, uh, to another really extreme and weird place, uh, uh, Bush Stadium. And it's not mm-hmm. just weird because they're both um, beers. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bush Stadium is a definite pitcher's park, and it's also got some really, really weird sunlight effects that make it really hard to hit at during the day because of the weird stuff with a shade. Just want to kind of okay. throw that out there. But yeah, he's a righty. He's hitting a lot of balls to all fields, but most of his home runs in 2020 were to left. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's been true for most of his career. He'll spray base hits, but his home runs are all going out to left. So I want you to first take a guess about where uh, Coors Field is going to sit in terms of right-handed pulled home run barrels. As a percentage. Um, or as a rank, actually. Where do you think it ranks? Oh, in terms ranks. Of- yeah top five um three nope it is bang average it is actually a slightly negative park to right to left field for wow right-handed. for so for home runs yeah for yeah for home runs it's 75.6 is like the three-year average according to dan uh that means it was like 0.05 uh percent like or like as, as, like a standard deviations below the, right yeah a little margin of error there um now right. confidence interval yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like he's 0.05 standard deviations below. Okay. Uh, yeah. Now, give a guess for Bush Stadium. Where do you think it is? I don't think it's better, um, but maybe close. Uh, you know, I, I think that Coors Field has this reputation as being this hitter's park that people are blasting home runs, but apparently not quite as much, more like league average. So I would say. Uh, how about I put it this way? I'm going to say it's within five spots, of course. It is third to last. Bush Stadium is a stealth hitter's hell. Uh, Marcelo Zuna was really happy to get out of there. It is worse than Miami in that regard. Uh, Marlins Park is slightly better than it in, uh, both left and right field. Uh, really meaningful for left field, but Marlins Park has played, uh, bang average to left, uh, so Azuna actually went down a peg heading to Bush. And then obviously SunTrust, um, a really good place to be um, in Atlanta uh, in general. I try to see for left. Uh, it's about average. That's just for home runs. Uh, so, you know, there's another guy, right? We talked about Bush. He didn't move this offseason. So I, I know you couldn't bring him up. But I just wanted to try- <laughs> say, like, Bush is really bad. <laughs> I don't want people to be there. Um, and... We'll we'll see how that plays out for some other people who are heading in and out of there, like Colton Wong. I don't think he's as interesting, but I think Arnold is really fun to talk about in this regard. Now, let's kind of flip the script there. We've just been talking about home runs. The other thing about Coors is the not home run effects, right? What do you think drives that? So I think um, I think this is one of those things that uh, is a little bit of a misnomer. So again, we talk about Coors Field, and, and obviously I just stepped into the bear trap thinking that it was a huge home run haven, right? But I yeah. I do know that that um, it's it's really bad in terms of giving up pitching to contact. It's it's not not great. And I would assume, and I don't know, so you're gonna have to tell me whether I'm I'm on or off here. But I would assume it has a lot to do with um, the spin rate and the air when the the ball that is being pitched is coming in. There's not as much air for it to catch. There's not as much pressure and friction pushing it. Uh, and so the pitches come in flatter and they're just easier to hit. Yeah. Yeah. Less pressure, less spin, definitely easier to hit. The other thing is the walls are far back. Um, there's a humidor in there, which has meant the ball has died in the air a little bit more than it previously had, but still you're going to have a lot of space to hit the ball 
into. Now, mm-hmm. definitely hitters can struggle because spin works differently. It can be hard to adjust back and forth. So, like, there's some other things. Colorado's just such a terrible place to be a baseball player in the long run because it just runs against you. Um, mm-hmm. Whole separate thing. But if you're an away player, you come in there, and um, it's also the Rockies' first game at home for a minute. Like, for example, on... I'm totally pulling this for a reason. August 19th this past year, the Astros went to Colorado after a two-game series in Houston. Mm -hmm. And that game, um, Kyle Tucker was able to raise his season-long OPS uh, like almost 150 points. He hit one home run, three or two triples, and a single. He was a double short of the cycle there. Uh, an absolute monster game for him really changed the course of his season. I think it helped his confidence a lot. Um, And the triples he hit there are not going to be triples elsewhere. They Mm might've been doubles. (laughs) I don't know if he like hits the further cycle everywhere, but like the amount of space (laughs) to hit the ball into the weird corners to get it caught in are really going to help. Um, If you're an outfielder, you gotta throw the ball farther. Um, Fortunately, I think Colorado's just done some dumb things with their outfield and, don't have as good of arms as they possibly yeah, could out there. Another issue for Colorado. Mm-hmm. So it literally just is how much space do you have to hit the ball into that is going to affect um, average? And and that's pretty much it. Like um, other than maybe the contact thing you brought up. Um, so like just dimensions to different directions. And then also just like weird things for the ball to do. Like uh, Wrigley, the Ivy can maybe make the ball play weird. Um, you also have the green monster obviously but you know just mm-hmm. anything like that that's going to change someone's expectations they used to have that hill come in and made yeah that was really really crazy um so like <laughs> you know every home fan gets to talk about their cool thing at their park um some of them make things play differently than others uh average is way easier to figure out if you're talking about wrc plus though to kind of come back to that it's still just gonna be the culmination of factors so you don't mm-hmm. want to be want to just compare WRC plus if you're talking about hitters and pitchers because they're all going to play slightly differently in the adjustments. But, you know, if you're trying to figure out, like, how your team's going to do when you're moving somewhere else, it's probably all going to even out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. over the, the long run. Um, maybe let's talk quickly, uh, not to belabor the point here, but somebody going back the other way, uh, and that's CJ Crone and mm-hmm. how how things are going to impact him. So CJ Crone is a guy that I've been really into for the past couple of years, and I'm just kind of disappointed it hasn't all come together. CJ Crone barrels the ball a lot. Um, he's not a perfect hitter by any means, and he's had some injury issues on top of that. Uh, they really wrecked some things, but he is a dude who I am so excited to see um, in a position where he could potentially succeed. Like, seriously, this guy, he had a bang average uh, strikeout rate, but a 95th percentile barrel on contact rate in 2019. Mm-hmm. That meant that um, in terms of like barrels per PA, I'm making sure I'm pulling this so I'm getting the exact correct number. He was second in barrels per PA in the league behind Mike Trout, a guy you may have heard of. Yeah, I think. I think so. He plays out there in L.A., right? Yeah, yeah, he does. Um, (laughs) So CJ Crone's really good. He's also a righty. um, So part of it is like he might get platooned, but he's going to absolutely succeed. Yeah. Yeah, that might be a thing. Is though it's like maybe that less bit. Who knows? There's a lot of different things to come into play. But in terms of home run power, gonna be a little bit of an upgrade from Detroit. In terms of batting average, gonna be in a little bit of upgrade. Maybe I mean they're both huge parks. But the other thing is just like the confidence that gives you. I imagine he's gonna be in a good position. I 
I really liked the signing for him and for Colorado. He really complements what they're, well, what they have available at this point. They've kind of hauled some stuff out. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've talked about Colorado before. This is just like a really good match of he's not stepping on anyone's toes. It's going to be a good environment. He's not going to hit like a billion home runs. We talked about it with barrels. He, but he's going to barrel the ball a lot, I think. Uh, so he should be a huge value play. He's still going really late in drafts, too, because he had barely been signed. Um, I got right. my eye on him. I definitely got my eye on him. Yeah, and a little bit of uncertainty in terms of playing time. Yeah, you know, um, if, you, if you want you want to know something, though, projection systems uh, really do like him. Derek Cardi was tweeting about him. I'm going to pull this one out if I can. So Derek Cardi is the guy who makes uh, the bat and the back X, um, which mm-hmm. notably did crush <laughs> a lot uh, last year. So, yeah, um, here's his tweets from the other day. Um, before Coors, they predicted him to have a 345 Woba and 28 home runs at Coors. Um, that turned into a 366 Woba and 35 home runs. Yeah, right. Um, that guy is that just, does assume a, a full time oh gig, though, right? Yeah, and, and that's that is an assumption. But I want to say they're probably signing him. It is a minor league deal that's probably going to be official. They're probably sticking him there because they're not going to have a third baseman. They don't have a first baseman from last year. Um, it's not like they're overwhelmingly like flowing with like guys to step on his toes. McMahon probably goes to third or second. They probably yeah. put him at first full time. And it's then, not like uh, he's blocked. It's just it, it, exactly. it kind of feels like everybody in Colorado is blocked to a certain degree. Yeah, exactly. And I think we're going to see a really successful CG crone. Um, the hitting for average, though, part would be really exciting because the first baseman going to have a lot of home runs, hitting a premium part of a lineup that's going to, at least a lot of the time, produce a lot of runs. It's a guy I want to own. I mean, maybe a thing that you would consider is if you're in a daily moves league, he really washes matchups, and maybe he's your backup first baseman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, lefties at home, absolutely start. Righties at home, maybe you don't start. Righties on the road, you sit him no matter what. And then the lefties on the road, uh, you'd probably start him. And that gets you like a really optimal allocation of like most of the time first baseman that lets you maybe fill a util spot or like a, a middle infield or corner infield spot. God, I'm, I'm absolutely going to be drafting him though. It's just <laughs> scary how good he's going to be. Well, I think you make a good point actually in the distinction between like a daily and a weekly league and in the context of park factor. If you're mm-hmm. talking about a weekly league, there's a lot of times that it um, it conflicts, right? And you got to make a, a tough yeah, decision. Yeah. Like, hey, my guy starts at Coors, but then he goes to Bush Stadium. What do I do? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are going to be some NL teams that are going to make some funny trips like that for sure. Yeah. Um, and there are definitely also just other things to consider. Like we've talked about who are you going to be hitting against? Will that affect your lineup spot? Other stuff, but just generally, like I think this is the easiest for pitchers. Um, if you're a pitcher at all heading into Coors, I'm pretty scared unless you're like really good. But if you're a pitcher yeah. heading into um, somewhere like Miami or somewhere like Atlanta, you know, it's going to differ based off of the park and the lineup you're facing. Um, All right, I'm going to flip this back to you. Let's talk about some pitchers here. Um, We had a couple guys heading to New York, uh, Corey Kluber and Jameson Tyone, um, Mm -hmm. that are both heading from more neutral environments. A lot of people are worried about the uh, AL East. What are your, how are your guesses for how uh, those are going to affect those two different guys? Uh, Well, I, you know, I I think what we would need to do and uh, is look at what you were talking about. Right. So the first thing that I would do, given what you've kind of talked about and and shared, would be look look, to look at that uh, 
the barrel percentage of balls that are home runs for righties and lefties in places like Yankee Stadium, Fenway Park, um, and uh, especially Yankee Stadium because that's where they're going. <laughs> yeah, let's, <laughs> right? let's start with um, let's start with Tyone moving from PNC, well-known hitters, um, not Park. <laughs> very good for pitchers. Very good for Tyone uh, to Yankee Stadium, which is obviously really good for lefties. Now, Tyone, he's coming off TJ, so there's a lot of stuff that we got to worry about. Um, so he's going to be facing a lot of lefties and heading there. Um, obviously, he's going to benefit from wins, but I want you to guess how big the jump um, in terms of uh, barreled home runs for lefties are from PNC to <laughs> Yankee Stadium. So uh, a ranks jump or a percent jump? Uh, let's do a rank jump. All right. Um, Ten. So Yankee Stadium is first, 88.7, and PNC is uh, bottom eight. That puts it at uh, 23rd, so, <laughs> so a little off. bit more. We're going off. from 70 to 90, basically. So someone like Tyone might be letting out like 15, 20% more home runs than he might have. It's like 15% is actually what that number comes out to be about. Uh, but still, that's a pretty scary increase. Yeah, that's a chunk. No. Let's pull it the other way, though. Um, for the righties he'll face, I want you to guess how big the jump is for righties. Well, I might as well just make up a number because I haven't been anywhere near right on any of these. So um, we're doing <laughs> ranks or are we doing percentages? Ranks. Let's go ranks. Ranks. Um, I'm going to guess it's a little closer. I'm going to guess it's maybe more in that 8 to 10 range that I guessed last time. They are 4% off. They're very, very close. Yankee Stadium is really not friendly to righty power at all. Um, which is really crazy. Uh, PNC is second to last. The Yankee Stadium is sixth to last. So if you're a lefty pitcher, you actually do want to be in Yankee Stadium. It's a great place to be. Um, Corey Kluber, unfortunately, also right-handed. Uh, <laughs> uh, progressive Field in Cleveland obviously isn't as big of a jump. Um, let me pull that one up. Obviously, he was in Texas technically last year. I don't think anyone really cares. Um <laughs> Because he didn't actually pitch much there. Uh, yeah, so progressive field for lefty power um, is seventh. Actually, a really good place to be for a lefty hitter. Um, so those switch hitting lefties that they have uh, who are potentially on their way out and or already gone, Lindor and Jose Ramirez, uh, that's been a pretty good place for them. Just want to say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, we've been talking about a lot of guys who are strikeout oriented. Um, guys who are definitely trying to rely on their fly balls staying and you get talked about a guy you're a little bit uh, curious about last week and this is a guy who isn't changing parks but we see his stat cast page and this is uh framber valdez mm -hmm. i want to guess how park factors are affecting someone like him uh that's very interesting um so he he gets a lot of strikeouts and swings and misses from his curveball if the ball's not in play then it can't be impacted by the park um, and somebody well, balls are really low also. Yes. Uh, somebody, I was going to say somebody who's keeping the ball down in the zone and generating ground balls, uh, at a higher clip than fly balls, I would imagine, or line drives would, would be less affected as well. That would be my guess. Now there's some interesting elements that happen in minute made. Minute Maid's a really interesting part to talk about. Um, 
I, Why do I feel again, like you I, set me up with a trick question here, Alex? No, I, I, I didn't. <laughs> That's the fun thing. So it's got relatively short fences. You know, those uh, crawfish boxes that got out there in left field are like basically a cheat code. Just ask J- Alex J- Bregman. Almost as good as knowing what the pitch is coming, uh, how short those crawfish <laughs> boxes are. Almost. Um, but he's a right-handed pitcher, and he's a ground baller. So the limited outfield space and pretty good defense in right field that he's had in the past couple of years has mm-hmm. meant that he's really, really benefiting. Minute made plays two different ways depending on how your style is. If you're allowing a lot of fly balls like Justin Verlander, it can't hurt you. If you're allowing a lot of ground balls to the outfield, a good defense and short fences can really really help you out so this is why i want to talk about like one of the last things here is what your expectations are going to be in terms of how defense and park factors are going to kind of talk like work together yeah that was actually a question i wanted to ask was you know we live in this stat heavy environment right teams Mm -hmm. are using numbers all the time we're seeing these crazy shifts and Mm -hmm. movements uh and so i i guess i'm going to answer your question by turning it back to you and say Um, you know, are these shifts that are responding to the way that batters are hitting the balls impacting, uh, the way that a park plays? So if the, if the team that plays in the stadium knows that stadium, Mm -hmm. um, Oh yeah, that's a good way to think about it. You know, they, they know kind of the quirks, the way things go. They know that the ball hit to, to this field is going to go. I can, I can, uh, position my guy a little further back in the outfield because it's much less likely something's going to drop in front of him. Um, whatever the case may be, uh, positioning and, and defensive shifting, I would think would, would kind of mirror or at least go hand in hand with the way that a stadium plays. So I imagine, and here, this is a little bit of conjecture, but I, we can think about why this would be informed conjecture before teams had a lot of data about where balls landed and exactly where to place an outfielder, depending on who's up at bat. I'm going to bet that the home field advantage for outfielder fielding was pretty Pretty extreme. Also, I said mm-hmm. the word field in three different ways in that past sentence. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, I imagine like a lot of the more data-driven stuff out there is literally just telling your dude where to stand so he um, makes the fewest mistakes. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I think this might inform us is not necessarily about shifts. Shifts usually happen with the infield. Maybe you have some guys playing some deeper for guys who are hitting really hard. What I tend to think about park factors and defense is which teams are going to benefit most from having really rangy outfielders and which teams are going to be able to hide the least because they've got the least ground to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how that benefits you as a home field sort of advantage. So who you can staff and, and what the way you're able to kind of construct your roster mm-hmm. because of the stadium you play in. Yeah, so if you're thinking about Boston, the people mm-hmm. you can sh- like sit and left there are a little bit different than elsewhere. Um, but those really deep center and elsewhere spots really might necessitate that you need someone with range in center and right. So that changes yeah. some stuff up. Um, yep. Jackie Bradley Jr., I imagine that there'd be some value gained out of having him more there compared to somewhere like Cincinnati, where center is pretty short. Yeah, he's going to be watching it go over the fence instead of tracking it down and, and, and you know making that play. Yeah, uh, although exactly. I would make the argument that Manny Ramirez did prove that playing left field in Boston can be done poorly. 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. Of all of the things I remember watching from mid-2000s baseball, the fact that I can remember the ball ricocheting off the monster and over his head and being misplayed is incredible. And I wasn't even an Orioles fan then. I was just kidding, Texas. Um, <laughs> yeah. I would say if you're a fan of a particular team, you're clamoring for a particular outfielder. Let's say you're the Mets. You're worried about your center field situation. I think you might be able to do is look up your center field home run to barrel percentage, figure out where you fall. And it turns out City is eh, pretty average. Um, in general, City Field actually plays up um, for home runs to both of the corners, um, and really in all directions. Um, but one of the things that does generally limit then is BABIP and like how you're going to do on balls and play. Um, the fun thing is then City just undoes that. Uh, Premier not City. The, uh, the Mets have undone that by fielding terrible defenders. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, there's how defense plays in. You just do yeah. it bad. You don't have problems no matter what. Um, <laughs> do they need the literal best center fielder? No, but they have no money. They can afford him. Probably wouldn't be a terrible idea. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, especially if it plays into a weakness of the, the stadium itself, right? Yeah. I would say, uh, though, City is definitely a place where you could hide a bad left fielder, relatively speaking, if more of the barrels are just going to be going over the fence anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's true. That makes sense. They've sure tried it. Let me say. <laughs> With that, I think that's about where I kind of want to settle things. The point of this is really just like, here are the places with good and bad park factors. It's more like, how can you think about it properly? And I think that you're, you seem like you're handling this just fine. We can make good expectations. I don't expect you to have this stuff memorized. Those of you guys listening, just bookmark this piece. <laughs> it's worth having on hand. Um, I mean, maybe bookmark's aggressive, but yeah. <laughs> go thank dan richards on twitter which i'm going to do anyway he's a really smart guy he doesn't get to write as much anymore because he's a fancy busy lawyer um <laughs> but he's also a great dude and if you have questions or anything he's a great guy to interact with well certainly our gratitude here for uh for all that hard work with that i think we should probably change gears a little bit um we have a lot of other non-park factor news to kind of just talk about this week yeah as well don't um we? you know i think um now would be a good time. We'll talk about a couple moves and, uh, you know, we have a, uh, a little callback to a previous episode and, uh, and we're going to have to, uh, one of the things I think we wanted to talk about today was, uh, the changes in the baseball, which I think we're going to have to push, um, very important, very relevant, uh, tied similarly to kind of performance like a park factor would be. So mm-hmm. stay tuned for that. Uh, we'll definitely address that in a future episode. Yeah. We should devote plenty of time to that. So I, I definitely am looking forward to that. But there's some great pieces out there. And we'll assign those as reading here at the end of the episode. Um, one of the things that we could talk about now is moving to that the, our, our pass fail, where we take a look at some of the moves that have happened. Um, and I think that there's two in particular that we should address. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to let you take uh, take control first and talking about them. So I'll give them both to you so that you can decide how much of these last few minutes you want to devote to each. Uh, but in this pass fail segment, uh, we'll talk about Trevor Bauer to the Dodgers uh, and the the Benintendi deal between the Sox and the Royals. Yeah, let's start with Bauer um, because everyone's got a lot of feelings about Bauer um, that no matter what, where they live, Bauer is someone that is going to show up and be talked about. I feel like Benintendi probably affects you personally a little bit more. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's there's so much weird stuff about the Bauer deal that is necessary to sort through. From like a non-personal, why did they make this choice point of view? This definitely screams out that the Dodgers do not want to be playing the wild card game. <laughs> mm. They absolutely know 
that their odds of winning another World Series hinge on them winning their division uh, to a great extent. If you have Trevor Bauer and Walker Bueller and Clayton Kershaw all available to play a wild card game, that's great. Still only going to give you a 65% chance of winning it. Mm-hmm. That means that your odds of winning the World Series go down by a third um, if you don't get that by. And this is at best. If they are in a wild card game against like make let's make it the Mets or like um yeah, like the Atlanta Braves. Like one of those two teams might be waiting them in that wild card game. It the NL wild card is gonna be an awful, awful place to be. So if you want to increase your world series odds by a third, you want to make sure you're not there. They're spending this money and they have a lot of money coming off the books next year. So like it works out, but they're spending this mm-hmm. money to try to pump up the World Series odds. I like that from them. That's explicitly what this is. Maybe it's a little bit of lack of faith in some of the back of their rotation. We don't know how good David Price is going to be. We don't know how good Tony Gonsolin is going to be. We don't know how good Dustin May is going to be. I think of those guys as all just like slightly below average arms um, at this point. Um, I think David Price, you know, maybe average. We'll see. But if he stays healthy, I mean, that's another, yeah. you know, there's the, the ability plus the health. Yeah, um, but you can have a slightly below average arm as your fifth pitcher. Uh, Julio Arias, um, mm-hmm. average-ish arm. Like, they can now mix and match, though, and depending on the opponent they're facing, get more out of those guys. Because, like, let's say that they're going to go face a team like the Astros, a really righty-heavy team. Mm-hmm. They can throw a righty against them. Um, or And then, like, they don't have a whole lot of lefty sitting on the bench who can really do a whole lot of damage. So that would be a really big advantage. Like if they're facing the White Sox, uh, you know, same sort of thing, really righty heavy. Now for teams that have really good lefty lineups, they could then change their rotation. A guy who's like sort of halfway between a reliever and a starter. So like strategy could really help them out. Um, Now, do I like him? Do I want to see him pitch every fourth day for the Dodgers? No, no, I don't. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, And I, I think you can really just, outsource that take to anyone you want he seems like he's a bad person for a lot of reasons and i uh don't feel like that's gonna fly well in a locker room with uh clayton kershaw yeah i, th- I think that that there's a lot to um uh to be seen there in terms of how he fits in you know in terms of what we're trying to get at here uh, for rostering people in fantasy and understanding the baseball Um, You know, that stuff doesn't necessarily factor in, but in terms of understanding what the impact of a player is going to be on a team and in a clubhouse and for the fan base. Especially when it's trying to win a World Series. Like, it's With so much scrutiny, I mean, the the locker room is going to be filled with people trying to get Trevor Bauer to say something after a game because it's good Mm -hmm. for for press. And and there's just a whole lot of other things that go along with having... uh, a force like Trevor Bauer, whether you love him or you, you hate him. Uh, he's a force and he's an, he's going to have a lot of attention and, and there's not a lot of, there's not everybody on a team loves being surrounded by that much attention. Yeah. And like, obviously the last piece of that there is also like, is he going to be throwing the baseball with the same substances on it next year? Um, I feel very comfortable saying that he was doing something to improve his grip. His spin rates basically tell us that he in interviews said that you know if you do this it'll increase your rpms by like 400 and it'll make you better mm-hmm. and then and he, then did, he it. did it yeah. uh so like we should take that as basically him telling the mlb what he did 
that's a discussion in terms of like the ethics of that elsewhere. But if you're trying to predict some performance too, it's like, I guess the Dodgers by saying they're going to pay him all this money to be that guy are expecting it's going to happen. I I would be shocked to see um, anything formal and obvious step into to change whatever it was that was happening, especially because it, by all accounts, it seems to be fairly widespread practice. Yeah. Um, so oh, of course. I, I'm, I think that like, that's a whole separate discussion, right? If you're talking about him as a player, you, you the substances on the ball versus his off the field stuff are like completely separate discussions. Yeah. Trevor Bauer, the player it, yeah. and Trevor Bauer, the person definitely. Um, so let's, let's get down to brass tacks here. You're, it sounds like you're giving the Dodgers and I don't know here. Are we, are we saying this is really good because they're going for it? Or are we saying that it's really bad because they brought somebody in who maybe isn't great for their overall team chemistry? I feel like we, we can grade the thought process, um, in terms of the on the field product is like totally understand it. Like probably I, I'm usually to say pass fail cause I don't want to give a letter grade here, but like there's a big chance that this blows up in their face relatively speaking also considering they're spending 40 million dollars this year and it's gonna go up yeah so like could they have spent that money in a slightly different way i'm actually not even sure like what else do you even spend it on um so i i want to punt this one we're gonna we're, we'll know <laughs> come uh the end of may we'll know come the end of the may on this grade uh we might even know by uh april 15th because at that point we'll know if uh, he's throwing the baseball the same way. All right, um, so I'm going to go out on a limb here, yeah. and I'm going to actually go, uh, and I'm going to split it along the lines that I just did in the distinction. I'm going to give them a pass on the being all in on the math in terms of, of getting a player that gives them a better chance to win the World Series. I'm going to give them a fail on bringing a personality in that, again, however you happen to feel about Trevor Bauer, he is divisive. Um, and he brings a lot of attention, and uh, not everybody in the clubhouse is going to appreciate that. Uh, and I think that that is not a clubhouse that needed to be disrupted in that way. Um, maybe I'm going to it's going to turn out to be wrong, and they're going to love him, uh, and they're going to go on or, and win. But or maybe they just got like the collective the personalities here are settled enough that he can't break them, and that wouldn't shock me either. Um, they've got a lot of dudes in there who are really talented who just happened to succeed and who probably have a little bit of their pecking order figured out. It helps when you have a sort of MVP candidate like Cody Bellinger, who seems like he's a pretty relaxed personality. It helps when Mookie Betts seems like he's a pretty relaxed, yeah. knows how to win sort of guy. In the pitching side, I guess it's different because he's not going to be re- re- like working with them in the same way. But like, you know, Kershaw and Bueller have been working together for a while. A lot of the other guys there have been there for a while. It would surprise me if the addition in there would be like adding a whole lot of gravity to the room, you know, you yeah, think about it that maybe. way, you know, like he'd be much more disruptive in a much less settled place. I, um, I, I hear your point. I agree with you, but I still think there's a chance that anywhere Trevor Bauer goes, Trevor Bauer is, is yeah. You know, the negative reaction could be really strong and like the established gravity could just reject it. Not yeah, out of so. question. Um, we can revisit this. We have to come God, back to it anyway <laughs> because you punted it, and uh, and we'll have to come back and see if if uh, I was right or I was wrong. And if yeah. uh, Mr. Bauer's listening, I'm sure we'll get his two cents too <laughs> on uh, on Twitter. Uh, let's just talk really briefly about the Benintendi deal, and I'm just going to put my stamp on it. I'm not surprised by it. I think it's a, a fail on the the side of the Red Sox. Um, 
I'm not really sure why they were so anxious to move him. I'm not sure that what they got back makes much of a difference to the team. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see it as much of a win. And I, honestly, I don't really see it as a huge win for the Royals either. And Benintendi's a bit of a, a risk factor too. So I'm not really sure what they were trying to accomplish here, but maybe you can tell me. Um, so the thing is, they're getting him on the cheap. Um, I think it's a pretty neutral-ish move for the Royals. I also think it's part of a series of other, we want to spend some money to put a product on the field moves that the Royals have made. And I actually really like what their new ownership has done to try to like establish that they are a place to be taken seriously as um, not a tanking team. Yeah, you can say that for sure. They went out and, and signed some people and made these deals. Yeah, no, they've made a lot of deals that like aren't going to make them a 90-win team, but might make them a high 70s-win team. Um, and I like it when owners want to do that. We'll see how long it lasts. Um, but they're the sort of team that absolutely would be in contention for making an expanded playoffs at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that Benintendi is a great buy-low player for them. The question is, like, if you believe that Boston is selling low, then by definition well you're getting some sort of recent value for risk in right. um in kansas city there is a chance that the new environment maybe some coaching changes whatever unlock a better player there he also fits a profile they like they like to run it seems i, I was worried that their mm-hmm. man, new manager last year was going to axe that and then they didn't um i i just think it's a pretty good fit it's a pretty good buying opportunity it's a pretty good statement I think the Royals are doing everything right with this move. They got to take some chances that may not pay off, um, that will at least be well-received. Um, I think the real winner here, though, is the Mets. Um, <laughs> and this is kind of weird. I've been talking about this all offseason. If you're a team with money, you need to find ways to spend your money on prospects. You need to buy other people's talent. Um, one of the ways the Rockies failed in their Arenado movie is they did this, and they just didn't get him back. Mm-hmm, um, right. The Orioles chipped off Alex Cobb and absorbed a fraction of his fraction, more than half of his contact or contract in exchange for a prospect second baseman. This is a thing you can do. If you're willing to spend, you can accelerate your rebuild by whenever you're moving a large contract, taking more of it back and asking for pieces instead. It's a choice you can make. Uh, So the Mets just found a way to get themselves involved and said, Hey, we'll take on some of the money here. Basically, um, through some complicated stuff and just give us a prospect and yeah. it's a brilliant move you should absolutely be doing that if you like don't know where else you want to put your budget in any particular year find a way like the mets to get yourself inserted into a deal like this where a team wants to like cut some payroll and maybe another team who would want to absorb some of it but not all of it wants to be there so great move there i i think that we're really seeing the Red Sox kind of like trying to figure out how to play themselves out of some really screwy situations. And I don't know what the alternative is here. Is the alternative they let him sit till the trade deadline? Because I think they should try something. I don't think the pay- the returners are. I know a lot of people like Frenchie Cordero. Um, we'll see. I think he's got he's got enough promise and can start um, that it's it could be worse. But I think this could also be better. I just feel like they they took Benintendi at his lowest possible value and moved him then. Um, you know, what's the harm in seeing if he can put it together at the beginning of the year in a lower pressure environment and yeah. increase his value a little bit? I think the harm is his stock bit, goes but... down worse. 
Yeah, I mean that's always yeah. the risk, I suppose. That's true. Um, you know, again, I don't, I don't hate it. I, I do think it's a. Uh, I w- if I had to give it a grade, I think that it's a fail for the Sox, just because, you know, everybody's it's, it's a long term it, fail. It's, it's a short term yeah. pass for me. Um, so anyway, it's it. it yeah, let's go back to the phrase that we all like to use these days, right? It is what it is, and the Sox are what they're going to be, and. Hopefully they've got a grand plan that I I don't see from my living room, and you would certainly hope so. You know they're the ones getting paid the big bucks to make these moves, so they hopefully they're playing chess and I'm playing checkers, and uh, uh, I, you know something I good comes like from it. I haven't been too wrong the past few years, just bending the under on um, what difficulty of game decision makers are playing everywhere. People usually aren't even playing. Uh, checkers often <laughs> it's usually more just like playing heads and tails in a lot of situations pick up yeah um, that that's not a bad comparison <laughs> so to to steal a phrase from our beloved nick pollock it looks like we're going a little long on this one uh but i do want to bring us to our off the book segment for just a super quick uh call back to our last episode where i i felt compelled to talk to you about snow and we talked about playing baseball and snow uh, and then lo and behold, today on uh, on Twitter in, in my scrolls, I see uh, that a, a high school girls team in Japan was playing baseball in the snow. So what I wanted to ask you for the people before we sign off here today is what is this black magic that you have working that you asked for baseball in the snow and suddenly it just happens? <laughs> um, I, I think that the... Uh... Twitter universe just rewards us in all directions. It gives us everything we don't want. It gives us some of what we do. It's just a reminder that humanity is uh, just absolutely winging it as hard as we possibly can at all times. Um, (laughs) And that's sometimes good. Um, Other times, very much not. Um, But uh, kudos also just to baseball in Japan as an institution. Um, Mm -hmm. It is so cool, some of the stuff that they are doing across the pond, both in Japan and Korea. They have slightly different baseball cultures, but one way or another, like, the fun there is just so high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like anytime you get a story out of, like, baseball in Korea and Japan, either of them, the result is generally, like, you're seeing people who are really enthusiastic about a sport. Yeah, um, agreed. And I I love that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, how can you not? We we love baseball because it's fun, right? And so if yeah, you know, like the in stadium traditions that they've got going on in the KBO are fantastic. Um, and obviously, they got a lot more press last year. Uh, but like, still, just like the fan culture. Also, if you watch it for like any, if you've watched any like the J League and soccer, fan culture there is pretty strong. Even for like a really fledgling institution, people mm-hmm. seem like they really like to support their teams in ways that like American fans are a little more casual sometimes if they're not calling into local radio and complaining about the Mookie Betts trade or whatever it is. <laughs> well, what we're going to do here is uh, make sure that when this episode drops and as, so uh, as you're listening here, this has already happened. We'll uh, make sure that we tweet out, retweet out that uh, the video so that Absolutely. you can enjoy Absolutely. that uh, that clip of baseball in the snow as well. And with that, Alex, we come to the end of yet another episode of Dugout Study Hall. Thank you for joining me once again and, and uh, talking math and talking uh, park factors and, and talking Do all things talk baseball. Do we math? <laughs> I don't think you know, there's a I mean, whole I lot of math I feel like there's here. always math under, yeah. under the surface somewhere. There's got to be some sort of algorithm in WRC+, plus, right? Yeah, and I, I think this actually goes back to a rule, I think, um, that I keep stealing from a dude named Stephen Hawking, which is that people understand what you're talking about if you tell the story with the fewest possible equations. 
he put one in his uh, book, uh, Brief History of Time, and I think I reference this all the time. Um, you don't have to give people the numbers to tell a mathematically driven story. Um, and I, I hope those of you guys listening along are out there looking for them on your own, but you don't need to just vomit numbers back to people to make your point. Um, that's kind of my hope here. And I think that's a wonderful place for us to end this episode. Thank cool. you for listening at home. And uh, Alex, where can the people find us? Well, they can find you on Twitter at the corked mat. I'm on Twitter at chase underscore rate. And most importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter at dugout study hall, where you can send us some questions. Please be sure to subscribe to the Pitcherless podcast feed if you haven't done that already. Leave us a good review if you can be so kind. And if you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. And that's it for me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>